This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 23, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Moral claims aside, it's difficult to come to a credible opinion on intellectual property from abstract concepts without knowing something about circumstances. So says Richard Epstein from the University of Chicago Law School. We spoke about copyright, patents, and the problems surrounding them last month. Just to clear away any uh, deadwood that may exist, do you think that there are any legitimate moral claims on behalf of intellectual property being a form of property? Yeah, I mean, and these are very difficult because the first question you have to ask, is there any moral claim for anything else being a form of property? And one of the things I like to do to explain why intellectual property rights are respectable is to show that the physical property rights for which they usually contrast it are in their own way very heavily um, precarious. Uh, so when you come to the Cato Institute and you sign John Locke and the labor theory of value, um, everybody says, "Our oh, men, this is the way real property works. And so now we have to ask whether intellectual property with its rather more diffuse boundary rights could be the same thing. If you go to a Marxist institution and you ask about that, what they will do is they'll start with Proudhon. And Proudhon will say, in a state of nature, everybody was entitled to to go everywhere that he wanted to go. And now that you put fences up, you've managed to eliminate these rights. And so therefore, all systems of property are theft. Well, then you think about this and you ask yourself, what's the difference between the creation of property rights by occupation, recognized from time immemorial everywhere on the face of the world, civilized and other sides of society, and the case of theft? And the explanation is, I think, as follows. In theft, the property actually belongs to somebody else, usually privately, although you can create theft of common property. It's a complicated issue. Uh, but the difference is that there's no return benefit to everybody else in society when I happen to steal something from you. When you start to create private rights in land, for example, several features make it much more credible. One is that nobody could claim all land by possession. There are too many other competitors out there. And secondly, once one person claims it uh, by first possession, marks it off with boundary and records it with the state for security purposes, it creates increased opportunities for other individuals. And those opportunities are created by the ability to put improvements, uh, let people on the land, have contracting between neighbors and so forth. So essentially, the Lockean natural rights justification for property and land spend less on the mixing of labor point and more on the fact that a coherent system of property rights with rights of disposition, with rights of possession, with rights of use will outperform a system which everything is left in common. But to make it even more complicated, every system of common law property rights always has a common element from the beginning of times for those things like rivers and waterways, which essentially work much more efficiently if open to all than if taken by one. Uh, so we have this sort of dual system, which was recognized from the time of Justinian and is still a dominant motif with respect to things today. So now when you go to property rights with respect to copyrights, yes, you do put labor in there, but obviously the copyright is worth more than the labor, otherwise nobody would bother to do it. Uh, but by creating these system of rights, you incentivize people to produce things. They now have exclusive ownership of it. They benefit other people by virtue of the fact that they could essentially hire them to promote their literature, act in their plays, and all the rest of the stuff. And they may have a monopoly over their own play, but they don't have a monopoly over all plays on Broadway because you can't publish or copyright protect the class of events. You can only copyright your own particular work. So what you do is you have lots of little monopolies and they form a competitive industry. 
And the consequentialist justification is the same for copyright as it is with respect to land, is that the privatization produces net aggregate benefits not only to the party who gets this particular property right, but to everybody else around him. And the same thing applies in intellectual space as applies in real estate and in other areas. There's a common element. The use of common language terms, for example, can never be expropriated by a given person because it prevents all communications just the way damming up a river prevents all kind of transportation. So if you see the parallels between the two of them, you realize that the Lockean stuff sounds more deductive than the actual world is. The real world has lots of empirical trade-offs. It turns out, for the most part, the broad contours of the trade-offs are relatively easy. The fine points are hard. How do I know the broad things are easy? Well, let's just reverse it. We now decide that all land is to be occupied in common and never to be made private. And it turns out that all water laws can be privatized by somebody who simply takes water out of the river. You look at these two situations, and it's quite clear one leads to mass starvation and the other could lead to general prosperity. So the consequentialist arguments are stunningly clear and easy cases, even if they get harder when you get closer to the line, as you always do in any legal system. So if we accept the consequentialist case mm -hmm. for uh, intellectual property, then how do we get to uh, a system of intellectual property? For example, copyrights have been extended over and over. Patents are for a specific number of years, but there's no particular reason why they're this, this number of years versus that number of years? Well, that's absolutely right. There's nothing. What you need to do is to have intelligent empiricism on these questions. And let's just see if we could figure out how you're going to hone in on this. First constraint is when you're dealing with intellectual property in the copyright space, the protections are generally going to be longer than they are in the patent space. And that has been true everywhere. Well, why is this? Because if I write a poem and it begins, shall I compare thee to a summer's day, you know, one of my favorite Shakespeare sonnet, it's not as though if Shakespeare didn't write it, somebody else would come up with that sonnet down the road. So giving stronger incentives for production there essentially has less foreclosure effects. When you're dealing with science and technology, everybody's using the same basic materials their general laws and so forth, only limited number of permutations. So if you give the huge degree of protection there, the foreclosure effects are much more dramatic. So you want to shorten the term. Uh, then the question is just how long do you want this particular term to be? And when you start thinking about this with respect to copyrights, you tend to think relatively on the longer side because the works will tend to retain their value over time if it turns out they have some novelty. And the original thing was 14 years plus 14 years extension. They then did it to 28 and 28. And, you know, I tend to be sort of somewhere between the two. And suppose you kept it at, say, 30 years. The thing to understand about most works is after they pass out, into the public domain, they're worthless um, because nobody wants to read them anymore. But the ones that really do endure are very valuable. And the attitude that I have is these guys have gotten huge returns for the first 30 years. Now the dissemination is on balance a little bit more important than the incentives for production. And so you switch it over because 30 years into the thing, uh, those discounted returns back 30 years ago are very small, but the present value on the other side is obviously greater. So you want to do something like that. The moment you tie a copyright protection to life plus 50 years or whatever it is, you know you're doing something wrong. Why should a 25-year-old get a much longer protection than a 75-year-old? Why is it that life has anything to do with it? People say, well, you need money all your life. Well, that's fine. You take your copyright royalties and you invest in an annuity. The financial stuff is so flexible. You don't have to build, as it were, an estate plan into the copyright law. You want to make them fit for business. So you only want these terms to be for regular years. With respect to patents, it's complicated 
updated again, but essentially most of these things are somewhere in the range of 15 to 20 years with respect to the protection. What is interesting is if you give that kind of protection and it's strong, it tends to induce competitors to come up with alternative inventions which cut out the monopoly value of the patent even though they don't cut out the patent itself. And if you actually check this historically, uh, second generation innovations are much more rapid now by competing patented materials than they are otherwise. And since this competition is so direct and so powerful, um, what happens is you don't have to really shorten the term. What you do is you get things down to a lower level with higher levels of innovation and you're comfortable. Uh, there are adjustments you have to make. Perhaps the most important that we've made is under the Hatch-Waxman Act, where given the fact that you have to patent something before you could take it through the FDA, and then the FDA ties it up from sales for God knows how many years. In 1984, they gave you uh, basically a five-year extension for various activities associated with testing and review. And you know that extended the term. And for drugs, this is extremely important because unlike other things, the value of a good drug tends to increase with time rather than to be reduced because the long history and experience with respect to its use means you can do dosages better, deal with side effects, know more about the drug. And so typically, in many successful drugs, their most prosperous years, they are last one on the market. New drugs don't have the durability test given the way in which they go through the process. So the Hatch-Waxman was a huge stimulation to what's going on and did immense amount of good in the 1980s. Reagan-era legislation, which essentially was strong property rights had a very positive effect. Now the FDA has undone most of this stuff because the cost of going through clinical trials now for a new molecular entity is somewhere $2.5 billion, depending on which study from the Tufts Center on this thing on, on food and drug policy that you actually read. So um, what you'd have to say about this is you can't answer this question from the abstract. You actually have to know something about the particular field and, and know it from the inside. And I think that when economists talk about patent policy uh, from a global perspective, they miss too many of the details of the landscape that actually matter in particular cases. Particular interest groups in the United States, people in the so-called content industry have done their level best to include longer copyright terms into trade agreements as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this was a terrible development to some extent. That is, when you got to the Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998, which went way beyond what I think to be the optimal period, one of the things they do is say, well, this is the only way that we can harmonize with the Europeans. We won't be able to get long protection for our stuff over there unless we give those guys long protection over here. So you're going to use the foreign policy tail to wag the policy dog. I think, you know, given what I've said about optimality, we're way over the top. And what we should have said is, Frankly, we don't want to protect American people overseas at this particular length. We think that the dissemination is a good policy. There is in American policy a regrettable tendency to figure out that export monopolies are really wonderful. This was true in the 1998 statute. Most people have never heard. Have you heard of the Web Pomerine Act of 1918? This is essentially for commodities, a situation where the United States organizes an export cartel as a specific exemption from the antitrust rules. And the argument is really very simple. Let the other guys pay a fortune so we can do well. I think if America wants to be a responsible nation, it should not only insist upon competition by others selling into the United States borders, but it must respect competition for its own people selling overseas. And when you don't do that, it looks like bullying and imperialism, and all sorts of other mistakes. And one of the things about the sort of standard intellectual naturalites, if you will, theory of copyright protection is it applies to all people in all directions and has no place in it for sort of buy American, sell American preferences. It would have to. 
right? Uh, as, as a general principle, yes. One of the peop- things that people systematically understand or misunderstand about the natural law formulation is that natural law rules have no citizens because there's no state at the time that they're done. So those rules tend to have a kind of universality, which you often lose when you have to put citizenship restraints in there. And yet anybody who's thought a second about the immigration problem realize once you form states, you can't have open borders. So then the question is exactly what kinds of deviations from natural law rules of open engagement are necessary when you form a political state. That is a problem of enormous importance. But one of the clear things that you don't want to do is to start creating export cartels for your own people, knowing that it's going to encourage retaliation. They're not as dangerous because you can avoid these by buying from other countries, as are the tariff stuff. But think of this as a continuation or an earlier precedent of the Smoot-Hawley tariff of 1930, which had some harm in America, but huge negative implications for world trade. Again, if we accept the consequentialist case for uh, intellectual property, uh, you separated in the event discussion today this idea of the ability to make things versus the ability to create things. Mm -hmm. And uh, that rolls into the the idea of so-called patent trolls, people who sit on ideas waiting for someone to be productive with them. Well, that's the argument of what a patent troll is supposed to be. Uh, what it says, in effect, is I have this thing. I patent it. I don't license it to anybody. I wait for an inadvertent infringement, and then I pounce upon them and claim more by way of damage remedies than I could have ever gotten by royalties. Isn't, uh, isn't there some sort of uh, Cosian solution to this? Well, I mean, this is just it, – it tends to be a wildly overstated problem. First point is you've got to find lots of illustrations of patent troll. And they made a couple of technical adjustments in the patent patent law to eliminate what they used to call submarine patents, which you had valid before they were registered. And the moment you put the registration thing into place, it means that knowledge on the other side is much more powerful, so that it's less of a constraint. It's also, it's a suicide strategy, because if you do that, you don't make licensing income from the first several years of this thing. So what really is in this case is most people want injunctions so as to encourage other people to license from them. And then what they do is they enter into an elaborate transactions. It's not widely understood just how complicated the licensing system is for intellectual property. It's more complicated than for anything else, precisely because intellectual property assets are infinitely divisible and recombined in every way. So you have patent licenses, exclusive, not exclusive. You have patent pools. You have uh, special uh, patents, uh, strategic patents receiving um, special kinds of benefits. The whole system is an elaborate tapestry. And for the most part, it seems to have worked. That is, when people start talking about how the ability to hold out in contracting situation creates a serious blockade problem. Uh, You actually try to look for empirical evidence of that. It's almost impossible to find. Um, And you see large numbers of pool formations. And in addition, you see something which you could never expect if blockades and holdouts were really a problem, which is radically declining prices in virtually all the relevant industries where these things are set to happen. Software is the usual source of abuse. And if you look at the cost per unit of information provided by your Mac phones or or Samsung phone or whatever, uh, these costs have gone down so rapidly. So you have to reconcile the notion of Moore's law, meaning everything doubles in production within 18 months or so forth, with the idea that somehow the prices are going to be stagnant. And it just simply does not work. 
virtually all of these guys are repeat players, and all of them understand that if they keep themselves out of the stream of commerce, having an isolated patent is of no value to you, and everybody will circumvent it. What you need to do is to twinker a little bit with the um, remedy side if you're worried about infringement that's inadvertent. And essentially, the correct rule is you give somebody uh, basically a damage fine uh, for a short period of time before you give the injunction. That, that way, they could either negotiate an agreement or invent around the particular patent. And the sting of an immediate injunction is simply removed uh, reduced by 90% if you give a six-month grace period in which only license damages will be supplied. I'm going to close with this. Assume we're able to clear, wi- clear away our entire copyright system uh, in a blink of an eye, and Richard Epstein is given the task of designing a new one. What does it look like? Well, it looks a lot like the original statutes. I mean, the bells and whistles for special industries, I think, all go away. Retroactive invalidation or or extension of patents or copyrights goes away. But you can't conceive of running a system like this, which doesn't have a registration system of some sort or another. You want it simple. You have to allow actions for infringement. You have to allow for licensing. And you have to allow for the privilege of fair use, for criticism, and for a variety of other things. Um, My own view is that they basically did a pretty good job in navigating the trade-offs. And so I would probably go back before the 1976 Act, uh, keep the coverages so that you, you, know, you deal with screen performances and radio performances being protected, and would get away all of the intricate special interest provisions. I mean, I think, in fact, oddly enough, the patent law or the copyright law of 60 years ago was simple. And my ideal statutory reform, not perfect in every detail, was the 1952 Patent Act, which was remarkably simple compared to the grotesque thing that we Talking about copyright. Yeah, no, 19, I know, but it's the same thing. Um, The patent stuff, the 52 Act was fine. Um, In copyright, the 76 Act was not fine uh, because more complicated. What's happened is the political forces overtook the legislative process. This was not done in 1950 to near the extent. And the moment you start getting heavy interest groups coming in with special provisions, you're asking for trouble. Richard Epstein is a fellow at the Hoover Institution and a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago Law School. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.